Hello and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers. Thank you for joining us. So we are so pleased to welcome our expert faculty members, Dr. Vega and Dr. Ahankai. Uh, thank you both of you so much for your time today. Thank you, Faith. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck. Uh, all activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Today's learning objectives are to assess the impact of COVID-19 on Black, Latinx, and American Indian and Alaskan Native communities and the factors contributing to health disparities in these communities. Uh, we'll also uh, be describing current and potential management strategies for mild to moderate COVID-19 and describe current management strategies and identify potential treatments for COVID-19 requiring hospitalization. As a note, the material presented is current as of November well, second of 2021 uh, for the most contemporary and up-to-date guidance. Um, if you are watching this on demand, we do advise you to go to the NIH and IDSA guideline website. So we've posted here. But Dr. Vega, thank you for your time. All right, Faith, thanks for the great introduction and for uh, bringing us up to speed with some excellent questions. I'm gonna start with a quote because this is really one of the themes we have today. Um, I've worked in a space, Dr. Ankai's worked in a space uh, where we see people of color um, with the majority of our practices. And so um, we're used to seeing these health disparities when it comes to things like uh, diabetes or depression or heart failure um, and infectious diseases too, uh, like HIV AIDS. Um, but so, you know, COVID-19 has really drawn out these disparities though. So, you know, those same disparities we've seen in those comorbid conditions and the social determinants that produce um, the higher risk in um, American Indian Alaska Natives, uh, Black communities, Latinx communities, um, are the same uh, conditions that have made COVID-19 worse uh, for these communities. So I like this quote because it's this is uh, just an exacerbation of a problem that's longstanding and something we'll call out several times throughout, throughout our discussion today. You know, I work in the outpatient setting. I work in the biggest safety net clinic here in Orange County, California. And, and it's just a, a nice reminder to me uh, the fact that a lot of folks um, with COVID-19 are not hospitalized. What well, we had in our medical center, you know, we had, um, you know, a overflow capacity with a, you know, two, two huge tents with COVID wards, you know, out in the lawn in front of our hospital. Um, most patients, 80% or so, are managed outpatients. And that's, the, that's the section I'm going to take as we go through this. This uh, slide, you know, for those of you who need a little bit of a refresher, maybe haven't seen as much COVID, this is a really nice graphic because it, it describes uh, the virology of, um, of COVID-19 as well as the symptomatology and even has some guidance as to when you want to initiate treatment. So the red lines are SARS-CoV-2 levels. Um, and then, you know, there's a corresponding uh, tab below that that describes symptoms. Uh, remember that patients oftentimes, as they get more of that severe inflammatory response, day five, even day seven, day nine of illness, they can do worse. So we have to monitor our patients with COVID-19 routinely. And I really want to shoot for about every two days until they're feeling uh, significantly better to avoid uh, folks deteriorating without our knowledge and then end up ending up in a severe crisis going in the emergency department and eventually the ICU. And then look at treatment as well. You really want to start antiviral therapy. You want to start monoclonal antibodies as soon as possible. Think of them as antiviral agents. Generally, antiviral agents work the sooner you can, uh, you can get them initiated. With immunomodulators, they do have some role earlier if the patient has severe illness, but a lot of times are used um, you know, later in the illness after day five, after day six, when patients have that severe immune response and they're in the hospital. And so Dr. Ahankai is going to be addressing that issue shortly. In terms of who is at high risk, um, it's most of the patients I see every day uh, for certain. When you throw in uh, diabetes, obesity, a history of chronic kidney disease or COPD in the mix, and uh, those are all very relevant uh, conditions. Uh, it's the patients I see every day in my practice. And so I'm really um, aware of what our protocols are for early treatment, particularly monoclonal antibody treatment. Uh, for high-risk individuals um, are because I want to be able to get that treatment on board. My goal is usually uh, within 24 hours of a diagnosis of a positive infection for SARS-CoV-2, I want that high-risk individual um, getting a monoclonal antibody therapy because the sooner that uh, those agents are on board, the more effective they're going to be. And this list does change a little bit. Um, but if you, certainly, if you, the, and I would just also point out, the risk factors are generally additive. 
So uh, when you have, you know, I don't have patients with one of these risk factors, I have patients with four or five, and unfortunately that person's at just much higher risk for complications of COVID-19. And we know that, um, that overall uh, communities of color have been uh, disproportionately affected in terms of the incidence of COVID-19, as well as the complications, particularly the complications of COVID-19, including hospitalization and death. So just to call those out specifically, American Indians, Alaska Natives, Black, uh, and, his, and Hispanic Latinx communities, higher risk uh, for hospitalization, hospitalization and uh, mortality. And they're getting more cases because um, these are frontline workers. There's folks who really need to, uh, to work to live. They live in more crowded conditions. So uh, it's been very difficult um, having um, you know, a one bedroom apartment shared by two families, total of nine people and one case of COVID-19. How do you isolate in that situation in any meaningful way? It's, it's, been, it's been really uh, difficult and trying. And so luckily right now we're in a spell uh, here in Orange County where our numbers are down uh, substantially. And I really hope that we don't see another significant surge anytime soon or ever, uh, because uh, we've, we still haven't solved that situation, obviously. Uh, when it comes to, we've, I think we've gotten better, certainly with vaccination, uh, with masking, uh, but those social determinants, they're, they're still there. They're just as prominent as ever, as that first quote uh, alluded to. And so this is uh, data from the COVID uh, net um, uh, nationally, uh, looking at uh, over 140,000 hospitalizations. So you can see those same trends uh, that for the risk of hospitalization, ICU admission and death, higher uh, for those, particularly for those three populations I mentioned earlier, American Indian, Alaska Native, uh, uh, Latinx, Black. And then just to simplify in terms of mortality rate, um, this, uh, this pandemic is killing a lot more of people of color, uh, you know, proportionally uh, versus whites. And where are most of those deaths occurring? So we know that there's a disproportionate effect in COVID-19 of uh, killing uh, people of color uh, versus um, Asian Americans and, uh, and white Americans. Uh, but where the greatest disparity is in terms of that risk of death is actually among younger people. So folks in their 80s, of course, are at a higher risk of mortality overall related to COVID-19. And there, there's less of a racial uh, difference uh, based on race and ethnicity. But get down to you know people between 40 and 50 years old or 30 and 40 years old, you know, there we're seeing a lot more folks um, of color uh, die due to COVID-19 proportionately. And that's why we see you know, a lot of kids who are affected and, um, and now are losing a caregiver uh, due to COVID-19, which is a real tragedy. Okay, so let's think about like how, how do we go about managing folks with COVID-19? How can we prevent some of these very difficult and tragic outcomes? You know, one is a good diagnosis. Um, and I mentioned you know, monitoring symptoms, so we use telehealth. Pulse oximeters are you know, much more available and wearables uh, do work, but they don't always work exactly right. I have gotten calls, so, you, know, with, you know, panicking calls saying my, my oxygen saturation is 60%, what do I do? Well, how do you feel? I feel great. You know, so, well, okay, so you have to teach patients how to use these appropriately and same, some of the same tricks we've used, especially just rechecking it, um, turning it on and off. The simple stuff uh, needs to be reiterated because you know, patients and their families don't necessarily have that uh, training. I'm a big believer in supportive care, but I'm also going to be aggressive because most of my patients do fall into high-risk categories, so I'm going to try to get some kind of antiviral treatment on board as soon as possible. And I think you're probably familiar with your, uh, you know, with the national recommendations regarding isolation, at least 10 days. Um, but patients, of course, can break isolation before all their symptoms are resolved. If it's just a lingering cough, but otherwise they feel fine, they've been in febrile for more than 24 hours, then, uh, then they can, uh, and it's been 10 days since the onset of symptoms, of course, they can be released. And uh, quarantining, I don't think those rules have changed for some time. We're probably pretty familiar with those at this point as well. So let's talk about you know you getting more active because we know that monoclonal antibodies um, work well, but they've also been underused nationally, and I can I'd be happy to speak to you know why I think that is. Um, but one of the first on the scene was bamlanivimab, then it was paired with another um, antibody that binds to a different epitope of that SARS-CoV-2 spike protein called etzivimab. And now that cocktail, you're like, wait a minute, I didn't think. Maybe you're thinking, what happened? Bamlanivimab and etzivimab went away. Well, they did. Now they're back. Um, so against the beta variant, they weren't uh, as effective, and so they were uh, held from the market. Um, but versus Delta, which is, of course, the predominant uh, you know, variant we see right now in the United States, 
there's mild to maybe moderate resistance. It kind of depends on the study you're looking at, but not not severe resistance uh, against Delta. So Bandlimab plus Etzimab was reintroduced in the market uh, since early September. So we've had it back for a couple months now in total. Castorimab plus Indevimab, this is one that has uh, not demonstrated uh, strong patterns of resistance to any of the mutants of uh, COVID-19. And I think I'll call out a couple of things in these studies we go through. Just look at how diverse the pool of patients in, is in these studies versus a lot of randomized uh, trials. Um, I think that's great. And I think it was uh, necessary uh, just because of that's who's getting infected uh, with COVID-19. So you see higher proportions of Black and Latinx um, uh, patients in these trials versus usual. I'll also call out the castorimumab plus indevimab. Not only the calling cards for these agents are, I'll just go back one, you know, the main outcomes is they're effective in reducing those severe consequences, hospitalization or death with bandlimab, etzimab, an 87% reduction in the BLAZE-1 trial. Um, with castorimumab and devimab, 71% uh, reduction with that approved 1,200 milligram lower dose. Um, but in, in the case of castorimumab plus indevimab, there's also reduction in, ter in terms of duration of symptoms. That's important for patients getting you know, back to work early, back to school early, just feeling better. Of course, we wanna make them feel better. And also this one has a, a special EUA that can be applied subcutaneously in situations which it, in which an IV is not available. And I think that's been one of the main difficulties with the application of monoclonal antibodies overall is some of the requirements about you know, having an IV infusion, monitoring patients for an, an hour during the infusion and an hour afterwards, and having crash cart um, available with people not to use it. That's a, that's a lot of resources, particularly for under-resourced communities. And so I think that's it's some of the logistics that have held back the use of these agents because it's hard to argue in terms of the efficacy when you're thinking about risks of hospitalization and death. So trovimab is, had, it was the latest to come on the market. Its EUA was in May 2021. And it was granted based on this study, which showed an 85% reduction in hospitalization or death uh, versus uh, placebo. Um, this was stopped early because there was a clear uh, efficacy benefit with sotrovimab. So we have different options in terms of monoclonal antibodies. And I think that, you know, for me in my primary care practice, what I'm, what I'm really doing is, is just keeping up with, okay, what's going on? Where are our protocols? How do I get these agents on board? And to me, you know, any monoclonal antibody is going to be better than waiting, you know, a couple of days for a certain monoclonal antibody that's, that's being shipped or something like that, or sending patients to a different center where they may not be able to get it. Um, any, any of these agents uh, is going to be better than nothing, and so therefore I'm, I'm really trying to get them on board uh, more quickly. And this is a study that, that uh, verifies that the monoclonal antibodies do work in a, a large urban, um, urban medical center. This is data from February, and uh, you can see that the risk of ED visits or hospitalization, in this case not death, but ED visits or hospitalization was overall reduced 82% in those treated with the monoclonal antibodies. So, uh, so therefore, these agents really uh, do work both in the clinical trials and then also it's nice to have real world data on top of that. So who should get them? Uh, it's, it's very important to know these rules as well. So it's really reserved for folks who are at high risk of complications of COVID-19, but that's a pretty uh, long list. And that includes Black, Latinx, and American Indian, Alaska Native patients. So don't forget about those, those critical groups. Um, they have to be at least 12 years of age. Um, they have to have symptom onset within the past 10 days. Um, in the clinical trials, you know, patients were being enrolled on day six or seven of illness. So I could assume that if we can get the treatment on board in two or three days, we might be seeing even better outcomes in prevention of hospitalization, for example. But there are those rules about it's an, it's an hour-long IV infusion. Even with castorivimab plus indevimab, if it can be given IV, it's preferred to be given IV instead of sub-Q. And even if it's given in a case where you don't have that option, it's given subcutaneously, patients still need to be monitored for an hour afterwards by trained personnel. So this is, uh, this is why protocols are, are important. In terms of the criteria for monoclonal antibodies, defining those high-risk conditions, it's a similar list to what you saw previously. And, um, and I'll just point out, the, because this, I'm not going to read this, this long list to you, but uh, do understand that the, you, know, you do have some discretion. If you have a patient with a with a borderline uh, BMI and they're 62 years of age, um, you know, maybe because they're close on a couple risk factors and you're in your clinical shared decision-making with the patient, you decide that a monoclonal antibody will be helpful for them, uh, go ahead and, and you could recommend it. All right. And so this is uh, current guidelines from the National Institutes of Health as well as the Infectious Disease Society of America that really 
all of the monoclonal antibodies um, can be applied. But we do also, while we have to think about what are our protocols and how do we get these agents on board expediently for patients, uh, we also have to be aware that variants are emerging. And right now, there's, there's no strong recommendations regarding particular variants that I'm aware of. Um, because you can use any of these agents, but in two or three months, you know, who knows, it's COVID-19. So we have to keep up with the epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 as well. More to do, but that's why we're here to help. Um, one thing that's really exciting is that, you know, we, I do have a lot of families that live uh, really close together and you have three generations, um, you know, and, and maybe the 24-year-old uh, person who does deliveries becomes infected and they have, um, you know, they have contact with an 84-year-old uh, grandparent who has heart failure and COPD and severe diabetes and end-stage renal disease. So I've actually seen cases like this and I have not used the prophylaxis yet, um, but there is evidence that prophylaxis uh, can work with castorvimab plus and devimab in this study uh, looking at household contacts. And so just like we might use a drug like oseltamivir for the prophylaxis against influenza in a high-risk patient, you can use castorvimab plus indevimab as post-exposure prophylaxis with a substantial reduction in uh, any type of infection, but particularly symptomatic infection. Uh, and so the, who is this indicated for? It's indicated for folks who are at high risk, um, who are unvaccinated or expect to have an inadequate response to the vaccine that mean they're somehow immunocompromised. Um, and they have to be at least 12 years of age. So those folks, especially in those, those very high-risk conditions, um, I would really try to get um, castorvimab plus indevimab on board uh, for that at-risk individual because it can prevent infection and, and potentially severe outcomes such as hospitalization and even mortality beyond that. Bamlimab plus atzimab also has uh, proven to be effective as post-exposure prophylaxis for, and in this study, it was actually in a skilled nursing facility. So this is a specialized setting, but we know that COVID-19 has had its, you know, I think most severe impact globally in, um, you know, in those clinical care settings where you have uh, like a skilled nursing facility. And so you can see that uh, patients were randomized uh, to, uh, this is just banlimumab alone and a placebo and uh, there was an 80% reduction overall in terms of the uh, rate of symptomatic COVID-19 among residents, and then a 57% reduction among staff. And so uh, Bandlimab plus Etzimab also has an indication, uh, similar to the other one, high-risk patients unvaccinated or they're gonna have a poor response to the vaccine, at least 12 years of age, um, they have an indication as well for, for prophylaxis. All right. And I think I just, uh, my information services department is flashing me some kind of warning, which I'm going to ignore, but I'm not going to ignore what you probably really want to talk about. Um, and that's molnupiravir. Um, so molnupiravir is, uh, so this agent is not approved yet, but it's getting a lot of attention uh, because it is an oral agent that appears to be active against SARS-CoV-2. Um, we don't have published data on it, uh, but we do know from press releases that in a randomized trial with 775 um, outpatients who were unvaccinated and at least one risk factor for severe illness. Um, this five-day course of molnupiravir was associated with approximately about 50% reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death versus uh, placebo. And it was effective um, across the, uh, the different um, variants that were in circulation at the time. Uh, so molnupiravir is, is currently under review by the FDA. And so that's exciting. It could be exciting to have another option. A lot of those logistical issues uh, could be uh, potentially drawn down, but there's also still, uh, you know, certainly things we don't know, and we have to look forward to more data and a publication of this date of this trial data as well. I'm just going to make sure I didn't skip another one as my nope. As oh yes, I did skip one. Sorry. So boy, when they hang banners all the time here at UCI, and it's like we we know the emergency department's down for saturation it's, it's been that way for for several months but it does it does sorry it does like make your computer reset so i apologize for that and skipping this because this is another area that's important and i'm going to call on imana you know to get her perspective on this used looking at hospitalized patients now just remember that uh that monoclonal antibodies currently indicated uh for uh generally for outpatients is where they're primarily used you know, there was a trial early looking at monoclonal antibodies among inpatients and it didn't produce positive results. So therefore it didn't receive that recommendation initially. But among folks who come into the hospital with, with COVID-19, 
and they're not producing a, um, an antibody response, there might be some benefit for these monoclonal antibodies in terms of in, you know, the, a very important benefit because we're talking about a potential mortality benefit. Not if they're mounting that immune response, but among zero negative patients uh, for SARS-CoV-2. And Ima, can I bring you in for a second and get your take on using these monoclonal antibodies among certain inpatients? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, this 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 trial is pro providing some intriguing data, but of course we know there are, um, uh, you know, in our clinical experience, actually, at Vanderbilt, in my institution, we, we actually are using some monoclonal antibodies for inpatients who are hospitalized for reasons other than their COVID-19 infection. So I think that's a population where they're, you know, they're, they're you know, where, where we can comfortably use it. But this provides some intriguing data that there may be a role. Of course, we're going to get to the inpatient side in a minute. And like you said, you know, this is about early treatment before kind of the, the cat is out of the barn, so to speak. And so um, if they're hospitalized, you may have kind of missed that window of opportunity. Um, but this provides some nuance for, you know, seronegative patients who, who, where there may be an opportunity uh, to, to, pro to alter the disease course early. But I think we need more information on this. Yeah, so the so right now the only time we really should be thinking about using monoclonal antibodies among inpatients is folks who are admitted for another reason, so exacerbation of renal disease or they're you know an accident of some type and they're found to be SARS-CoV-2 positive and they're high risk uh, for complications. So you're giving it those folks. I'm sure especially if they're not vaccinated, correct? Right, but all you know, yeah, exactly. Although it, it shouldn't matter, but with supply chain, it, it does. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we've we've had the same issues here, and now we're back up to speed and running, and that's generally what happens. But now we have our surge is going down. So, yeah, it's 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 been a challenge to keep up with it and, and staying ahead because it's it's quite an unpredictable beast, uh, SARS-CoV-2. So that said, despite all our best efforts and our and our best agents out there, you know, some of our patients are going to be hospitalized. That's inevitable, and luckily we have great physicians like Dr. Ahunkai to take care of them. She's going to talk about uh, hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Great, thank you. So, yeah, as an infectious diseases physician, this is you know where a lot of my time has been spent over the last uh, year and a half or so. Um, this is a great slide, just giving an overview of <clears throat> the NIH recommendations for inpatient management of people with with uh, uh, COVID nineteen infection. And so, um, and really emphasized here on the left is kind of the spectrum of disease severity. So for patients who are hospitalized with the mildest disease and they do not require supplemental oxygen, <clears throat> there isn't really data to support either the use of, of uh, steroids, dexamethasone, um, or remdesivir. So that's really supportive management for that group. Um, as they move on in disease severity um, and require supplemental oxygen, then we have data which will show you to support the use of remdesivir, dexamethasone, or a combination of the two. Um, so, so in, in our institution, we, we tend to, to use both, um, but we'll look at the data there. Um, for people who are worsening, have worsening disease on supplemental oxygen, um, then we can add to that armamentarium. Um, and so this is requiring high flow oxygen um, or non-invasive ventilation. This is an important branch mark. Uh, for those patients, we can add on um, baricitinib or tocilizumab. Um, to the dexamethasone or remdesivir, whatever regimen they're on prior to that. Uh, when we cross the threshold to people who require mechanical ventilation or ECMO, um, this is where we can use um, dexamethasone um, or add tocilizumab um, if it's within 24 hours of the ICU admission. So time is um, still of the essence in this, in this protocol in a slightly different way. Um, but these are the important kind of inflection points. Is the patient hospitalized? Yes. Does the patient require oxygen? Is the patient rapidly progress progressing um, on the initial therapies? And is the patient requiring mechanical ventilation? So we'll go over um, the data there. So um, this slide shows um, data from um, the ACT-1 study. Um, and this is looking at um, the the, the treatment outcomes for remdesivir versus uh, placebo. So remdesivir is the blue line. The placebo or control group is the red line. Um, you can see on the, on the figure A on the top left, um, in the overall group, the proportion recovered looks to be higher in that remdesivir arm 
um, versus the placebo arm. Um, and then if, if we see uh, in uh, the important subgroups that this study broke out, um, we have um, in the top left B is, uh, sorry, top, top left on the right panel B is patients um, not requiring oxygen. Um, and then on the top right C is patients requiring oxygen. You can see there's a difference there in the separation of the, that blue and red line. And that's really where we can see that patients benefit um, from remdesivir when they're receiving oxygen. Those lines are overlapping um, in patients not receiving oxygen. And certainly there's overlap for patients who are um, on mechanical uh, ventilation or on high flow oxygen. So this, um, this highlights again where we see the benefit from remdesivir, patients who are hospitalized and requiring oxygen. So a picture sometimes is, is worth a thousand words there. So this uh, next slide is highlighting data um, from um, a landmark trial published in 2020 by the recovery group. And the premise for this study was that it was um, increasingly being understood that, that there was a subgroup of patients with COVID who had um, a severe inflammatory organ injury associated with their disease. And we saw really elevated levels of inflammatory markers like CRP, ferritin, um, IL-1, IL-6, different acute phase reactions. So um, you can see from this study, um, uh, a UK trial, two to one ratio um, of uh, over 4,000 in the control, 2,000 in the dexamethasone arm, it was actually halted early because of the benefits shown, which we can see here on the right. So people in the um, usual care arm, um, this was 28-day mortality as the outcome. Um, usual care had a higher mortality than with the dexamethasone group. Um, and you can see, so this was the first drug that were, was showing mortality benefit. Um, and, uh, but if you look all the way on the right, individuals who were not on oxygen, people who didn't require oxygen, seem to actually do worse. So the benefit here for um, dexamethasone were in people with much more severe disease. So if they were on oxygen or, and um, requiring mechanical ventilation, so that's the important inflection point there. So um, this is another study coming from the recovery arm looking at, uh, for the recovery trial, looking at tocilizumab. So um, tocilizumab um, is, uh, is a monoclonal antibody that targets IL-6 receptors. So IL-6 is one of those um, uh, cytokines that's released in response to infection and stimulates a, a you know, really robust inflammatory pathway as part of the acute phase response. So tocilizumab was um, studied against um, usual care. In this trial, importantly, most of the patients were on steroids um, and uh, about 41% of them were on um, non-invasive uh, ventilation. So um, you can see here um, from the figure on the right, looking at 20-day outcomes, that patients um, in the tocilizumab arm in purple had reduced 28-day mortality compared uh, to the usual care arm. So this is data highlighting uh, the, the role of tocilizumab in those patients who were on steroids um, and requiring non-invasive uh, ventilation. Um, or some of them requiring non-invasive ventilation. So representing that category of patients who were, um, you know, doing worse on initial therapy uh, 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 with oxygen, uh, with um, requiring oxygen on initial therapy with steroids. And um, this, this FARS plot really shows, again, the benefit of tocilizumab over um, usual care for most subgroups. Um, so here, the, the box that's highlighted is looking at days since symptom onset. Um, Dr. Vega did highlight this for um, outpatient therapy about the importance of time to treatment, and that's really being highlighted here as well. Um, so patients who started uh, therapy less than or equal to seven days from symptom onset, you can see um, they did a little bit better um, with the, uh, with the uh, line there, not crossing one. Um, and then also you can see subtypes looking at the type of respiratory res support required. So if they were um, uh, had no ventilator or a non-invasive uh, non ventilation, they uh, had benefit from tocilizumab. So um, those are the important points highlighted from that forest plot. So moving on um, to baricitinib. Baricitinib is an orally administered medication. Um, it's a selective um, JAK1-2 inhibitor, and 
this was um, is also something that really impacts that um, inflammatory cytokine pathway that we see in a subset of patients with severe uh, COVID-19 disease. So again, we're looking at the ACT2 trial, and we can see that baricitinib was associated with an improved time to recovery when it was given with remdesivir um, in patients who required supplemental oxygen, but um, not on mechanical ventilation. Um, importantly, that trial didn't look at baricitinib um, with corticosteroids. So, of course, we looked at that progression of therapy from, you know, remdesivir and steroids. Uh, this trial looked at baricitinib without corticosteroids. Then we ha had the COVID barrier trial, which kind of addressed that gap, looking at um, the standard of care where 19% of patients were on remdesivir and um, 80, nearly 80% were on um, corticosteroids. Uh, when we look at these data, we see um, baricitinib in the, pur in the, in the purple um, showing a 38% uh, reduced risk of mortality. Um, so that's the important role of baricitinib. Again, we need to just be thinking about, is the patient hospitalized? Does the patient require oxygen? Um, and whether or not they are progressing on initial therapy with remdesivir and, um, and dexamethasone, to require escalated therapy with baricitinib or tocilizumab. So that's kind of a, a snapshot of, of inpatient management. Um, but I think we, we did want to spend you know, a good amount of time talking about um, disparities um, in, in treatment outcomes. Um, we'll really all along the cascade from infection uh, to hospitalization and, and treatment outcomes uh, with COVID-19. And Dr. Vega provided a nice introduction to that. Um, at the beginning of, of the presentation. Um, and we see that these disparities have, have persisted throughout, throughout the pandemic, unfortunately, driven uh, by some of the, the social determinants, uh, Dr. Vega mentioned, driving these issues. Um, this is, um, the right side, yeah. So this uh, slide is highlighting um, uh, from uh, Milwaukee Academic Center, um, it was conducted early in the pandemic in March of 2020. Um, and Mil in Milwaukee, African-Americans represent about 27% of the population that's higher than, than uh, the U.S. as a whole. But what's important here is that um, they saw that uh, black individuals, um, a greater proportion had greater than or equal to three comorbidities, you know, that, that would be important for COVID outcomes. Um, Poverty status um, was higher in the black than the non-black population. Um, and COVID positivity was associated with um, black race, um, male sex, and older age. So, uh, and then when they looked at hospitalization, that was higher among both um, black individuals and people uh, living in poverty. Um, differently, when they looked at ICU admissions, that was associated with, with poverty, but not with black race. So that, that was kind of an interesting uh, 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 disparity there. But I think it really does highlight that it's a combination of, it's not just, just, just blackness or race by itself, but really a conflation of risk factors that may uh, describe comorbidities um, that are uh, uh, driving worse outcomes and poverty status and the living conditions that create uh, those problems to begin with. So um, ultimately, they sit here that neither race nor poverty status was associated with death or with mechanical ventilation, but was really important for the earlier kind of steps um, in, in the, the, the outcomes uh, uh, by, by race. So I think I will stop there and pass it back to Dr. Vega for the next slide. Yeah, thank you. Uh, great summary. So yeah, just to be clear, this this is not genetic factors about you know, someone who's got some specific immune deficit, you know, in Latinx populations, or that uh, folks with uh, who are black happen to be more susceptible to, to SARS-CoV-2 infection. It really is about those social determinants. It's about those pre-existing uh, conditions um, that that have led to worse outcomes um, in black and Latinx communities. And but I think the heartening thing in the uh, Milwaukee study was that we saw that when you accounted for, say, poverty, and um, you know, th then there was 
black patients had equal outcomes in terms of risk of mechanical ventilation or mortality associated with COVID-19, even though they were hospitalized. But we know that for other conditions, and gosh, there's a lot of them. We're talking about revascularization for coronary artery disease, uh, pain management in fractures, and there's a list of others, both in kind of in vitro simulated cases, but also real world data support that there are disparities in the way we as healthcare providers take care of patients. And we didn't see that necessarily during the pandemic. There was uh, several studies which supported the fact that uh, that black and white patients were receiving you know, similar levels of care with similar outcomes when all those social determinants could be adjusted for. But this study published in June uh, 2021 uh, contradicted that. And it was a large sample of individuals from across the country. So it really was a more national sample of over 44,000 Medicare uh, beneficiaries. And what they found overall was that in, in unadjusted analyses, as expected, because other studies had showed this as well, uh, black individuals were at a higher risk uh, for either inpatient mortality or discharge to hospice within 30 days um, after hospitalization. But when they adjusted for those other factors, including, um, you know, uh, poverty, uh, living, in, living in an area without access to healthcare resources, that difference persisted. So that difference persisted. So this was this was a um, you know a clear sign of, of uh, unequal treatment, and it really was due to certain hospitals which weren't following certain, you know the right protocols, which weren't using um, the interventions uh, that we know could help patients. And when those when those hospitals were accounted for, and uh, if they had uh, been performing as the better performing hospitals had been. Well, then uh, that that risk of mortality, the difference between black and white mortality uh, increased substantially in this study. So this is a sign that there is, um, you know, some evidence of unequal treatment and something we have to be very aware of as we are healthcare providers. And um, and I'm going to hand it back to Ima. She's going to talk about, you know, some of these differing and and adherence to standards of care um, in the inpatient setting. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, some of you may have heard of um, Dr. Susan Moore, who kind of live streamed some of her treatment um, with COVID-19 and eventually succumbed to it. And I think her story um, and what she wanted to share with people really reflected, uh, you know, what Dr. Vega um, highlighted on the last slide, which is kind of differential uh, a, a treatment um, um, associated with different outcomes. Uh, but on this slide, we're really um, identifying more now uh, where um, varying standards of care may exist. So this was a retrospective study looking at um, the use of uh, different inpatient treatments from Desivir and dexamethasone and looking how these varied across health centers and how they varied by race. And so you can see in the, in the figure on the right, um, that uh, both remdesivir and dexamethasone had lower utilization in Black and, and Hispanic patients. Um, dexamethasone appeared to be underused among people who required mechanical ventilation. Um, of course, there's a variation in patient mix and, and drug access and treatment protocols, um, but this really does highlight that there are difference, differences in um, standards of care that are implemented uh, by race and that we have you know, a lot of work to do from an institutional perspective to address those disparities. So I'm um, going back a little bit again to the determinants of health. This is a nice figure highlighting that there are a number of factors that contribute to health and health outcomes. Some of them um, are linked to individuals' behavioral patterns. And we like to think about that a lot when we think about individual predictors. Um, but there are, uh, you know, genetic predispositions, there are social circumstances, there are healthcare factors, some of which we just talked about, and environmental exposures. And I think, you know, we can look at it this way and we can see that there are things that, that an, an individual patient may or may not have um, any control over, um, but that may be really important in determining their health outcomes. If we, if we look at it another way, um, you know, we talk about social determinants of health. We've mentioned them a few times um, on, on, this, on this presentation, and they can be looked at um, this way. There are a number of factors that determine, you know, this, the environments in which we live and work and do our, our daily deeds, um, economic stability, physical environment, education, access to food community and social context and the healthcare system, these work together to determine health outcomes. Like, like Dr. Vega said, um, you know, the disparities that we see in a number of chronic health conditions 
are really the conflation of all of these. We may see, for example, that people with, who, with COVID-19 who do worse have more comorbidities. But those more comorbidities may be driven by the fact, uh, the, the, the fact that an individual lives in a particular neighborhood that has no green space, that has uh, food deserts and they don't have access to healthy food, um, that doesn't have a, a good infrastructure for providing health care. And so when you layer on these challenges, then you may end up seeing um, individuals in certain communities like racial and ethnic minorities who have a greater burden of a number of chronic diseases um, that lead to a perfect storm um, as we've seen with COVID-19. So um, I will, I think, pass it back on to Dr. Vega to now talk a little bit about um, vaccines. Right, so um, it's, it's important to share uh, results uh, based on race and ethnicity uh, regarding vaccination rates in the United States uh, because you can see a clear difference. And remember, vaccination is really our number one public health strategy for dealing with COVID-19. Um, and unfortunately, we saw uh, especially if you look back between March and May 2021, you could see a distinct difference in terms of rates of vaccination as um, those among um, Asian populations, uh, white populations really took off, uh, much more lagging in terms of um, Hispanic and um, black populations. And yet we're still not getting here. Then the curves bend and as we all know, there's been a ton of controversy about vaccinations and mandates and how, um, you know, how are, what's the best um, strategy in terms of policy to get to get more vaccines on board. But it really does come down to the fact that we have still have, even though individuals who are black and Latinx have much higher risk of infection and complications, we're still seeing lower rates of vaccination, even as we've been able to roll more vaccines out into the community, which was a severe problem at first. And there's a myriad reasons for that. Um, and so it's, it's not just one factor, uh, but this data shows that, uh, that there's uh, many uh, difficulties from uh, logistics and infrastructure to worries about costs to worries about side effects um, that are more prevalent among black and Hispanic people uh, versus uh, white people. And I'm happy to talk because I want to save time for the Q&A about you know, vaccine hesitancy and, and how we, we work with it. But you know, in focus groups, what really seems to, to be most effective is, um, you know, assess, you know, being acknowledging that there uh, have been, um, you know, historical mistreatment of black and Latin, Latinx uh, persons. And uh, so that's real. Um, and that, you know, you want to be able to, to recognize that and again, empathize with your patients who, who have that as a concern. Um, and develop trusted messengers. Uh, and I, I like to think that I'm a trusted messenger, but I feel like sometimes that's been tested. I, I will say more, more so during this pandemic than any other time, I've really felt like I've, um, I haven't been able to have the influence and, and I think the closeness of a relationship with patients whom I've known for years. Uh, this is not like a, you know, for my first time seeing them. Uh, I've been taking care of their diabetes and their shoulder pain, et cetera, for a long, long time. And yet there's a little bit more distance now that, uh, that I feel when talking about vaccination specifically, and that is new. Um, and so what I've tried to work, you know, how do I work with it? I, I definitely hear them out. I hear their point of view. I personalize and talk about how I and my whole family has been vaccinated. Um, and, I, um, and I really uh, you know, emphasize there's some of the some of the other you know potential benefits of, of vaccination, not just in terms of um, prevention of COVID-19, but thinking about complications, including long COVID, um, thinking about protecting uh, one's family and the people they care about, particularly in those crowded uh, living conditions, um, and also just the finally the peace of mind that comes with with having vaccine versus um, versus no vaccine, and so and the, and the structural barriers are, are also very very important to address as well, and uh, that's that's a continued work in progress that uh, we need to continue to invest in over time. So I'm going to summarize right now um, before we get to a patient story. Uh, but uh, so overall, we know that Black, American, Indian, Alaska Native, and Latinx uh, folks are at a higher risk for both. COVID-19 um, infection, but also hospitalization and death. Um, monoclonal antibodies are effective, particularly for those patients at high risk, they have to be at least 12 years of age. Molnupiravir, we'll see. Uh, you know, it's, it's got an exciting trial that showed a overall 50% reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death versus placebo, but not yet approved. But it could take away some of those um, logistical barriers that we've, uh, we've both alluded to during this presentation. And for uh, hospitalized patients, uh, your best bets are you know, remdesivir, along with uh, drugs like dexamethasone, 
um, those are the ones that are indicated for more in more inpatients, not outpatients. Um, but uh, Dr. Ake did a great job of summarizing that data. Uh, what we haven't heard so much from from this discussion is the patient perspective, um, but uh, we do have a short video clip which just shows. Now this is very early in the pandemic, but I think it's still very telling as to you know the distress um, and, and the severe nature of uh, this pandemic and this this particular infection and uh, and just how patients can be treated and unjustly treated at that. Please roll it. I really was feeling bad and I knew something was wrong. So when I did wake up that Friday morning, I drove myself to the ER. The doctor came and she said, we can send you home on some oral antibiotics. I said, if I stay here, will I get the antibiotics I beat? And she said, yes. And I said, I think I wanna stay. But I did that because I was scared. The nurse that was taking care of me that day, I requested to her that she um, contact the doctor because I had been on every antibiotic and my temperature was still 104. And he said, we're going to test you for a respiratory panel. We're going to test you for HIV and we're going to test you for the coronavirus. I just hear someone screaming in the hallway and I told my girlfriend, I said, that's my mom. So my girlfriend gets up to see, was that really my mom? And when she got up and went out the door, a security guard came and slammed the door closed. And I'm banging on the window, banging on the window, trying to know what's going on. The security guard kept his back to the door the whole time. I turned the wheelchair around and I looked up at the television. We are told, in fact, that there is a person who is being treated in New Orleans that is from Jefferson Parish right this now. This is a person who has contracted the coronavirus. They are from Jefferson Parish, but again, they are at the VA hospital in New Orleans getting treatment right now. Who do you think that was? Great, thank you so much for um, letting us hear Kim's story and uh, Dr. Vega and Hongai, thank you so much for all that very important information today. As a reminder, we're going to move now into the Q&A. Um, our first question is, is there any data by race or income regarding time to testing, diagnosis, or location of care and outcomes? And yeah, in terms of in terms of data, I, I don't think there's a lot of data saying that time to testing is necessarily that different based on race and ethnicity. But there is data as to where the testing is occurring. Uh, the use of uh, patients uh, with COVID-19 among Black and Latinx uh, populations in the ED is much higher, which is why we're constantly down for saturation here in um, in Orange County. Uh, because a lot of patients, that is their primary care. It kills me as a primary care physician to, to see that. I, I want just tumbleweeds floating through the ED every day. That's my goal is wellness. But um, but yeah, instead we have the reverse situation. Uh, so in terms of where those tests are being done, it's more in the ED. And folks who are diagnosed, uh, if you're Black, uh, if you're Latinx, uh, you're more likely to be diagnosed at a more severe stage and then be subsequently admitted uh, with COVID-19. Okay. Um, and our next question how can I talk to my patients who are very skeptical about the vaccine? Ima, you want to take that one? I already gave some of my perspective on it. Yeah, sure. You know, I think, you know, obviously, as you could see me, I'm an African-American uh, female. And I think a lot of times, you know, people ask me to come and talk to a group of, 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 of individuals who may be hesitant about vaccination. And I never see my job as a provider uh, as convincing someone of what to do. I try to meet people where they are and make sure I hear respectfully what their concerns or their fears are. Because there's so much misinformation and disinformation, I try very hard to, to address that. Um, and then I try to see kind of what their motivations might be for, for getting vaccinated and making sure people understand the different layers of protection for themselves, for their family members, for their community. You know, if their goal is just to get back to normal life, that's a reason to get vaccinated. If their goal is to protect their grandmother, that's another reason. So I try to find, you know, where there may be goals and priorities in that individual's life that um, could align with, you know, what we know from a public health perspective and epidemiological perspective would benefit for them. 
I'll just echo that, uh, Ima. This is such a great point is to, to meet the patients where they are. And I will say that right now we are at a unique time where we can do that, you know, getting back to normal life, wanting to see family again. Guess what's coming up? A bunch of holidays where it's all about family and gathering and, you know, sharing with each other. And boy, it'd be nice to share and keep everybody protected. So I've, I've gotten a few vaccinations on board over the past couple of weeks that uh, pre heretofore were very resistant against vaccines because it's about protecting uh, the people they care about. So so really try to play on that now because if you're gonna think about protecting for, for Thanksgiving, today being November 2nd, you really wanna start the vaccination process you know, right now. Great, thank you so much. Um, and our next question here is, as oral therapies emerge, where do you think antibodies will fit into treatment? That's a great question, and I, I don't have a crystal ball on these things, but I, I still think the monoclonal antibodies have now such a strong record of achievement across multiple different types of trials as well as real-world data. So I think that they'll they'll fit in. It's just another piece of, you know, we've got different tools that we can use to prevent uh, the severity of COVID-19 infection. So, of course, the best is prevent infection in the first place. But monoclonal antibodies, I think, will still have a, a, a strong role to play uh, moving forward, no matter what happens with the molnupiravir. Great. Um, and our next question, when do we expect more information on molnupiravir and the EUA? I'm a, do you have any, do you have a crystal ball on your desk? I, I don't, I don't have one here. I don't have a crystal ball there. Um, you know, we're, we're all anxiously awaiting to hear uh, more information on that along with you. So I'm not really clear on what the timeline is, but, but we all hope that will be soon because I think that will you know, obviously logistically be a lot easier to administer oral uh, medications on an outpatient basis than, uh, than infusion. So we're all anxiously awaiting that. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you again to both of you. Um, and for our audience, if you'd like to claim credit, please do click that claim credit button. Uh, be in the lookout for also for our 30-day survey. You will get that through email. And as always, your responses will help us develop further education. Uh, so we thank you for joining us and have a great day. Uh, Dr. Alwa, or Dr. Vega and Dr. Ahonkai, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Stay you. well, everyone.